0: Brothers and sisters, have you ever experienced uh, having your hopes raised only to have them dashed and disappointed? I think we've all experienced that at many times and in many different ways. Some of you children, maybe your parents have promised that you're going to go to a certain place, an outdoor place, an amusement park, and then on on that day it rains and it has to be postponed. As my wife mentioned in, in the prayer hour, A foundation pledged $5,000 to her organization, SWAN, only to later withdraw that money. And that was a disappointment. But God provided in another way. This past week, I was trying to sell one of our cars, and I thought I finally had a buyer. And this man drove an hour, and we met at the notary, and we were about to transact the sale. And then we realized that there had been a major disagreement about the selling price. And it fell through. But God provided another buyer anyway. On a much more serious note, recently we heard of a a cancer diagnosis. And then there was the thought that maybe it was misdiagnosed. Maybe it's not cancer after all. Only to find out it is cancer. Well, on a much larger scale, we're going to see this morning that this is true in the case of the nation of Israel. We are doing... For those who are visiting, we're doing an overview of the Bible. I'm trying to give like one sermon for one book of the Bible. In this case, sometimes one sermon for two books of the Bible. It's definitely a, a flyover. It is an overview. And what we're going to see in Israel is that there was a promising start to the kingship, but a miserable ending. Now, I ask you to be turning in your Bibles to First and Second Kings, in the Old Testament. The Hebrew canon actually has these as one. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, actually calls them third and fourth kingdoms. Now the title of Kings is very appropriate to these books because it's all about the careers of the kings of Israel and Judah from the time of Solomon to the time that Judah was exiled in 587 BC. It's about a 400 year period. And the kings of Israel are crucial to the state of the nation. As it goes with the kings, so it will go with the nation. The kings will either bring blessing or cursing upon the nation of Israel, according to the promises and threats of the covenant made with Moses. And as we're going to see, the books of First and Second Kings begin with a lot of promise. Israel reaches the pinnacle of her power and glory in this book under Solomon. And then, led by its kings, it takes a tragic downturn. Blessing turns to cursing according to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And this leads God to raise up his servants, the prophets, to bring warnings and the threat of judgment upon his people. We're going to see four things this morning. We're going to see the pinnacle of Israel's glory, it's almost like paradise in Israel. And then the plunge into idolatrous apostasy, paradise lost. And then the prophetic ministry and the accuracy or truthfulness of that ministry. And then finally, very briefly, the prospect for posterity. What's the future for Israel and the world? So the pinnacle of Israel's glory, the first 10 chapters of First Kings is occupied with telling us the glory that was in Israel. It was almost like, paradise-like blessing. First, the preparation for this paradise. When you come into First Kings, the great King David is on his deathbed. And you remember that as a result of his sins of adultery and murder, God, through the prophet Nathan, had said to David, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And David's family woes dog him to the end of his life. Here he is on his deathbed And one of his sons, Adonijah, who was not slated to be king, makes a bid for the kingship. He exalts himself, he surrounds himself with followers, including David's general, Joab, and he makes a bid for the kingship. Thankfully, the faithful prophet Nathan talks to Bathsheba, tells her to go to David and secure that Solomon, her son, is to be the king. Bathsheba does that. David agrees, Solomon is to be king, and Solomon is anointed as king. and then David, on his deathbed, tells Solomon what will be the grounds for future blessing, first kings two, two to four. David says to Solomon, "I'm going the way of all the earth, be strong, therefore, show yourself a man, keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you go, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, we have a hint of trouble in chapter three, where Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh, and it was to form a political alliance. But then, as many of you know, in 1 Kings 3, God says to Solomon, ask whatever you will. And Solomon says, Lord, I need wisdom to lead this great people. And God is pleased with that prayer. That prayer honored God. Because he said you didn't ask for riches or honor or the the lives of your enemies, I'm going to give you unsurpassed wisdom, but I'm also going to throw in riches and honor as a As a bonus, Solomon demonstrates his wisdom in that well-known account, where there are two women, probably prostitutes, and they each give birth to a son. Sadly, at night, one of the women rolls over on one of her sons and and, and he dies. She then takes the dead baby, puts it in the arms of the other woman, and takes the living baby. So they come to Solomon and they have to figure out, <clears throat> who is the real mother of the living baby? You remember his wise. Solution, give me a sword. And he says, I'm going to cut the baby in half. And at that point, the true mother says, no, give it to her. And Solomon understands that's the true mother. Give the living baby to her. And when Israel hears of Solomon's wisdom, this is what we read at the end of chapter 3 of First Kings. When he demonstrates that wisdom, we read, When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So Solomon takes over for David as king of a united Israel, and under his reign, Israel reaches the pinnacle, the high point of its glory. What did that look like? Let me give you some pictures of of the glorious paradise-like condition in Israel under Solomon. Like I said, under Solomon, Israel reaches the pinnacle of its national life. Here are some of the blessings. In chapter 4, we see that there was good organization. Chapter 4, First Kings. Now, King Solomon was king over all Israel. These were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoreh and HaHijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And he goes on. Basically, he had good organizations. You men who run businesses, you know how important it is to have good men. Good men or women in the right place if your business is going to flourish, right? And David's kingdom had good organization. Further, there was joy, or rather the multiplication of the people. Chapter 4, verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. God had promised to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and you'll be like the sand of the sea and like the stars of the sky. Well, they had reached that degree of of multiplication. There was joy. In chapter 4, verse 20, the people were eating and drinking and rejoicing. There was widespread dominion, verse 21, chapter 4. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. There was abundant provision for his household. Listen to this in verse 22 and following. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. Abundant provisions for his household. We go on to read how before building the temple of the Lord, he built a house for himself. The dimensions were 50 yards by 25 yards, an elegant home. God was providing richly and abundantly There was peace and safety in the land. Verse 25 says, So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree from Dan to Beersheba. And all of this abundance, all of this blessing is attributed to the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. In chapter 4, 29 We read, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. But the supreme blessing and the blessing from which all other blessings flow was the presence of God in Israel. And remember, David wanted to build a house for the Lord but the Lord did not let him because he was a man of bloodshed. Now he did those wars under God's direction, but he was not the man to both fight the wars and to build the temple. But God permitted Solomon to build this temple of the Lord. Theologian Tom Schreiner says, Jerusalem is the center of Israel. The temple is the central feature of Jerusalem And the presence of God among the people is the central theme of the temple. Why did God bless Israel in that day? Because of his presence among them in the temple. Now, a few things about the temple. It took seven years to build. Some say that parallels the seven days of creation. I don't know if that's true. But the the temple building was magnificent. It was splendorous in beauty and in elegance. No expense or effort was spared. Let me just give you a glimpse. I mean, you could read the whole thing, but just a glimpse of the elegance and the magnificence of this temple edifice. In chapter 6, verse 20, describing the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. It says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, 20 cubits in height. It was a cube. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold around across the front of the inner sanctuary. And he overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. And it goes on. Gold, the finest of wood in preparing this house for the Lord. Do you know? The men employed, engaged in that effort, 30,000 forced laborers, 70,000 transporters, 80,000 hewers of stone, 3,300 chief deputies quarrying costly stone for the foundation. But God told Solomon, not the mere presence of the temple will bring blessing. He gives him this caution in chapter 6, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning the house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. The opening of the temple was celebrated in chapter 8 by bringing the Ark in, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments. And at that time of dedication of the temple, they sacrificed 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. And at that point, the cloud representing the glory of the Lord Filled the house. We read in chapter 8 and verse 10, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis says, the cloud both reveals God and conceals him. God is here. He's manifested by this this cloud, this Shekinah glory. He's here, but it's a cloud, showing that God dwells in unapproachable holiness. It both reveals God, but it also conceals God. Solomon makes a prayer of dedication, and his prayer, and it's a lengthy prayer, I just paraphrase it, he basically says, Lord, when your people in various situations look to this house, And pray toward it. Will you hear from heaven and forgive them? And he mentions various situations that might prompt people to pray. If a man sins against his neighbor and needs forgiveness, if Israel is defeated by its enemies, if there's drought or famine or sickness or or other plagues because of sin, when people look to this house and pray, Lord, will you hear from heaven? And what's the motivation? He even says, if a foreigner comes and prays to this house, will you hear him? 843 is the motivation for that. Hear in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. even anticipates future exile, and this becomes significant. He even anticipates that if the people disobey and they are taken captive, listen to what he says, beginning of verse 48, if they return to you, the people have sinned, and that's what's going to happen, and they're taken into captivity, If they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, maintain their cause and forgive your people. So we see tremendous glory in Israel at that time due to the wisdom that God gave Solomon. In chapter 10, we have the account of the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon. And her words, or the introduction is significant. It says in chapter 10, Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. Now, listen to this verse. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she comes, she is, as we might say, blown away. Literally, literally, it says the breath was taken out of her because Solomon's wisdom and abundance was far more than the reputation that had preceded him. And she actually says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. The rest of the chapter, chapter 10, is about the abundance of gold that Solomon possessed. It says, so King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom in which God had put, which God had put in his heart. So here is the pinnacle of Israel's glory under Solomon. And I pause to ask, what should we make of this? What is the significance of that? Some writers might say, you know, all of that abundance, all of that elegance, all of that opulence was was carnal materialism. But, you know, the scriptures do not fault Solomon for that at all. In fact, it indicates that it was because of the wisdom God gave him that this blessing came upon Israel. And so, no, we should not look at this as carnal, sinful materialism. It was the Lord who not only gave him wisdom, but said, I'm going to throw in riches and honor. The blessing of Israel in its glory days was God's doing. And I think we need to remember Proverbs 10:22. It's a proverb that says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Now, the Bible's clear. If you desire to be rich and you make haste to be rich, that is sin, and it will not go well for you. But if God blesses you with riches, he adds no sorrow to it. And aren't we thankful that God has blessed certain men and women with abundant resources? The work of the kingdom needs resources. It needs money. And God has gifted certain people with the ability to to make money and, and to give to the kingdom's work. And so we don't despise material blessing. We thank God for it. But another takeaway is that this pinnacle of glory in Israel may be seen as prophetic, prophetic of the ultimate kingdom, which would come through Jesus Christ. Did the queen of Sheba come And notice the words, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. I turn your attention to a moment, for a moment, to Psalm 72. It is a messianic psalm. It's the only psalm written by Solomon. Listen to its words. In light of the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon and coming as she did, with very much gold and precious stones and all the earth seeking the presence of Solomon. Listen to a portion of Psalm 72, beginning at verse 8. This is speaking of the Messiah. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Listen to this. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents, the kings of Sheba and Seba, offer gifts, and let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. And jumping down to verse 15, so may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him. Let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. Remember how Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here? Well, listen to the words of excellent commentator Dale Ralph Davis He says, the attraction that Solomon's kingdom held for the nations of his day is a foreglean, a foretaste of the destiny of the kingdom of God on earth. The Queen of Sheba is simply a sample of the future homage the nations will bring to Yahweh's covenant king. The trek of the Queen of Sheba and others is a preview of the future flow of Gentiles to Zion. And about all of this glory in Israel, commentator Theologian Tom Schreiner says, Yahweh's dwelling in the temple represents a kind of new Eden, a new paradise, and it anticipates the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth being God's temple in the future. Yahweh has set apart the temple for himself and put his name there forever. And then Schreiner says, Israel was in the land. Yahweh was in his temple. The nation was prospering. It seemed that universal blessing was just around the corner. That's what we have in the first 10 chapters. But now we need to see the plunge into idolatrous apostasy. When you come to chapter 11, it is depressing. And you see this quick decline. Paradise gained under Solomon. Paradise quickly lost. And we look first at what I'm calling the personal apostasy of Solomon. Listen to how chapter 11 begins. Chapter 10 ends with this glorious picture of Solomon's wisdom and the abundance and all the nations looking to him for wisdom and the queen of Sheba coming and being blown away by his wisdom and and, and abundance. And then you come to chapter 11, and this is how it reads. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. And the commentator Davis says it wasn't just political attachments. A lot of times he would marry different women to make political alliances. He says, no, no. It didn't hold him for political alliance. It was in love. There was affection there. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon, Mo- Molech was a, a stone idol with outstretched arms, and they would literally place their infant children there to be burned to death. And Solomon is subscribing to that worship. Thus he, also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. When Solomon turns away, God, as is his pattern and promise, began to raise up enemies against him for the good of the nation. One of the enemies he raised up was a man by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He rebelled against Solomon. A prophet comes to Jeroboam, and by an illustration of tearing a cloth, he says, I'm going to give you 10 tribes of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Ten are going to go to you. Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam takes over. And Jeroboam, this rebel, comes to Rehoboam. And he says, look, lighten the load on the people. Your people, Solomon made it hard for the people. Will you lighten the load on the people? Rehoboam is going to take, take counsel. He goes to the older men. And the older men say, yeah, lighten it up. But then he decides to go to the young bucks who were his peers, his cronies. What do you think? Oh, they said, don't lighten it up, tighten it up, make it harder. As a result of that, Jeroboam separates from Rehoboam, gathering around himself 10 tribes, leaving Judah. God left Judah for the sake of David and Jerusalem. And at that point, the kingdom of Israel becomes divided. I might say in passing that if you're seeking counsel, you might more highly regard the men with gray hair They may give wiser counsel, not always, and the Bible says the abundant years may not be wise. And young men can be invested with wisdom. I think there's a little moral lesson there. Look to older men for wise counsel. And I want to commend, we're so grateful for the younger couples and singles that are here. And I want to commend you that you obviously desire to be in a church where there's a diversity of people. Some churches are thriving, but they're thriving with young people, and there's not the wisdom of old age. Other churches are going extinct because there's only old people. and We delight in the diversity, but, but you're wise to want to be in a church that has peers but also has older men and women from whom to seek counsel. Well, Jeroboam then fears that as he's in the northern kingdom with ten tribes and Judah in the south, and Benjamin gets added. He's afraid that the people will go will leave him and go back to Jerusalem, which is the place of worship, Jerusalem and the temple. And so what he does is he invents his own religion. He makes two golden calves. Does that or calves? Does that sound familiar? Back in the days of Aaron? And he puts them one in Dan and one in Bethel. And he creates his own priesthood, contrary to the priesthood that God had set up with the Levites. He basically invents his own religion, his own cult religion, to try to keep the people loyal to himself. And his idolatry becomes a pattern that is followed by the other kings in Israel. In fact, it becomes a repeated line of different kings. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. If David, as I said, was the gold standard for kings in Israel, we might say that Jeroboam was the gutter standard for idolatrous kings. He became he set a pattern that was not departed from. So we have the personal apostasy of Solomon, which led to a divided kingdom. Now consider what I'm calling the perpetual apostasy of Israel and Judah. The kingdom is now divided. Israel in the north, ten tribes, Judah in the south. Let's consider the kings of of Israel. Friends, Israel in the north never had a godly king. All of them were wicked idolaters following in the train of Jeroboam. Jeroboam's son, I'll just read little blurbs here just to give you a, a picture of the idolatry that pervaded the northern kingdom. Nadab is the son of Rehoboam. How did he do? Well, 1526 of 1 Kings, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Baasha comes along and kills Nadab, and he rules for 24 years. How did he do? 1534, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. His son Elah comes to the throne, and we read about him in 1617, because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the works of his hands. Zimri is a man who kills Elah, and Zimri is one of the few suicides in the Bible. He burns the palace over him and dies, but it's interesting, the language is interesting, where it says that um, Zimri went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins, which he sinned, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we have a king by the name of Omri. And Omri is not a good king. In 1 Kings 16, we read of him. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him, for he walked in all the way of Jeroboam. Omri's son was Ahab. Ahab is a little bit more famous because he married wicked Jezebel. And remember one of the outstanding incidents of Ahab's life? He was that pouty, sulking, sullen guy. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth said, look, this is in the family. I can't give it to you. So Jezebel arranged to basically frame him and have him stoned to death. So Ahab could have his little vineyard. Wicked, wicked, vile, idolatrous people. Ahaziah's son was evil. Another son that became king, Jehoram, was evil. And we go on down the line. Jehu, Jehoahaz, Joash, Jeroboam second, Zechariah, Shalom, Menahem, Pekahiah, Pekah, Hosea, all the way to exile, all of the kings of Israel were wicked. All of them until they were taken into Assyrian exile in 722 BC. What about the kings of Judah? Well, the kings of Judah did have some good kings, but they also had a lot of bad kings as well. Let me just review a little bit. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, provoked the Lord and did according to the abominations of the nations. Abijam, his son, walked in the sins of his father. Asa comes along, and Asa was a good king, and You know how it happens that you have an evil king and he has a son who's a good king it's it's kind of mysterious but but that happens god is sovereign isn't he and we have asa and it says of him in first kings 15 and verse 11 asa did what was right in the sight of the lord like david his father and asa had a son jehoshaphat and jehoshaphat was a good king um although he, he made some unwise alliances with the, the northern king of kingdom of Ahab, but it does say of Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings 22, 43, he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. However, the high places were not taken away, etc. And you go on through the kings of Judah, and some of them were good. Some of them were evil. Josiah was a good king. He brought about reform. He recovered the law of the Lord. And some of them were good. Hezekiah was a good king. He did right according to all that his father David had done, trusted in the Lord after him or before him, none like him among all the kings of Judah. But then he is given an extra, how many years of life? Was it 15? And during that time, Manasseh, his son, is born, and he reigns 55 years, and he's one of the most evil kings in Judah. So no good kings in Israel, a mixed bag in Judah, and God eventually gives both kingdoms into captivity. Israel to the Assyrians in 722, Judah to Babylon beginning in 587 BC. And I want to read to you, a significant passage. Why, why did God deal with his people that way? Why did he send them into exile? Remember, there were the glory days of Solomon, the pinnacle of power and glory. God is with his people. God is blessing because of his wisdom. Then all of a sudden, the downturn. Solomon turns from the Lord. The kingdom gets divided. Wicked kings in the north, a mixed bag in the south, eventually leading to exile from both kingdoms. It's very significant to see why God sent them into exile. Listen to the language of 2 Kings 17, beginning at verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, carried Israel away into exile to Assyria, and settled them in various places. Verse 7. Now, this came about... Because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord, their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets And every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord, their God. Then verse, that's Israel, the Northern kingdom. Verse 19 says, Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. So Judah, the southern kingdom, gets sent into exile a hundred and some years later. So Israel goes from the pinnacle of its glory, the glory days of Solomon, when things in Israel were idyllic, almost Edenic, and they dive into the pits of apostasy and idolatry and for these reasons. What do we make of that? What does that mean for us? Well, we need to get this message. God hates idolatry, doesn't he? And what is idolatry? It's not making uh, an image of stone or metal or wood. Idolatry is loving, trusting, serving, obeying anything or anyone other than the true and living God. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. That's idolatry. Why does God hate idolatry? I think two reasons. Idolatry robs him of glory. He is jealous for his glory. The Old Testament breathes with that theme. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. He is a rightfully jealous God to be known as the only true God. He's the only creator God. He's the only one worthy of glory. And when we worship the creature, the created thing, or or God's made up in our minds, like Calvin said, our our minds are idol factories. We rob God of glory. And he will safeguard his glory. He says in Isaiah 42, 8, in another place, I will not give my glory to another. So why does God hate idolatry? Because it robs him of glory. But secondly, it robs his people of good. God is a good God. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's full of loving kindness and graciousness. He wants to bless his people. How often does he say to his people Israel, I'm the God who led you out of Egypt? I'm the God who freed you from bondage and brought you into liberation. I am a liberating God. I am a blessing bestowing God, and I want you to know my blessings. But you can only know my blessings if you trust me and believe me. And so, the second reason God hates idolatry is not only to safeguard His own glory, but because it robs His people of good. He wants to do them good, and He can say to Israel, "Look, I've only done you good, and I don't want to continue to do good." But you got to believe me. You got to trust me you got to worship me and not these other gods and i don't know if anyone sitting here is an unbeliever but if you are or you as believers can say this to unbelievers my friend if you're not worshiping the true and living god through faith in jesus christ you're worshiping something or someone we're all we're made to worship everyone is a worshiper everyone has a supreme concern a sumum bonum an ultimate good that they're serving, whether it's the praise of people, whether it's control, power, whether it's ease and comfort, you're serving something if you're not serving God. But I want to tell you that whatever that idol is, it will not do you good. At one point, the Lord in the books of Kings, he says, look, don't look to Egypt for help. If you lean on Egypt, it'll be like leaning on a sharp reed and it will pierce your hand. Any idol that you worship will end up piercing your hand. It will end up turning around and biting you. It will disappoint you in the end. And so I call you, if you're an unbeliever, to turn from your idol, whatever you're worshiping, and turn to the true and living God, the God of the Bible, who can only be worshiped rightly through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Idolatry will mock you. It will disappoint you. It will let you down. It will betray you, and it will mock you in the end but the true God will not. A third point, very briefly, more briefly, the prophetic ministry. You see, when Israel and Judah turned away, and it was their kings who were leading them, it wasn't a republic, it wasn't a democracy, they couldn't vote these guys out. When the kings were leading them into this idolatry, what were they to do? Well, what did God do? God raised up his servants, the prophets, men of God, men in whom he put his word, to bring the word of God to warn the kings and to warn the nation against their idolatry, which was bringing judgment upon them. And God's great concern, is and we see it in the books of Kings, is to show that he is the true God and that his word is true. And let me give you just a few highlights, very exciting stories, which you may know, in which God is showing himself to be the true and living God. One of the main idols of that day was Baal. I know we say Baal, but I have to look up some of these words. Even though I took Hebrew, I have to look up and say, how do you really pronounce this? Because you get into saying it one way, but it's Baal, okay? Baal was the God of, he was the storm God and the God of fertility. And he was a great threat to Israel. He was one of the chief idols they fell prey to. And one of the prophets who especially battled against Baal worship was Elijah, right? And uh, how did God deal with Elijah? The way God dealt with Elijah was to show that Yahweh was the true God and Baal was not. For example, Elijah bursts on the scene in 1 Kings 17 and he says, there's not going to be any rain except by my word to show that not Baal was in control of the weather, but Yahweh. Then he sends him down to the brook Cherith and he has ravens supernaturally supply his needs and feed him to show that Yahweh is the one who provides nourishment, not the supposed God of fertility, Baal. He meets up with a widow, the widow of Zarephath, and um, she's poor, and God causes her flower bowl to not run out miraculously to show again that God is the one who supplies food and nourishment, not Baal. But remember the biggest battle that Elijah faced. He challenges Ahab, and Jezebel, who was a patron of these gods, he challenges 450 prophets of Baal, Baal, and 400 prophets of the Asherah to a contest. We're each going to build an altar. We're going to each cut up an oxen and put it on it. And let the God, who is the true God, answer by fire. And Elijah, just to really make things interesting, douses his altar three times with water until there's water running in the trench. The prophets of Baal are over there crying out to their god, Baal, and he's not answering. They're cutting themselves with knives and blood is gushing out. And Elijah says, what's the matter? Uh, Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping. Literally, in the Hebrew, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. He's mocking those gods. Then Elijah calls upon the true god. God answers by fire, consumes everything, including the stones on the altar. and He takes out those 450 prophets of Baal, and he puts them to death. Who is the living and true God? Elijah, before he passes off the scene, he announces prophetically that dogs will lick up the blood of Ahab in the very place where they unjustly shed the blood of Naboth this king who had all that he wanted, wanted this one man's vineyard and they unjustly framed him and stoned him and shed his blood. His own blood is going to be shed in that very place and it came to pass. He also predicts that dogs would eat the dead body of Jezebel and that came to pass. Before Elijah dies, he's allowed to anoint his successor which was Elisha and God does a lot of miracles through Elisha. I don't take the time to go through all the miracles that God did through Elisha to show that Yahweh is the true and living God, not these false gods. You know, there were three periods in the history of redemption where there were miracles, miracles were profuse. In the time of Moses, right? The 10 plagues, the time of Elijah and Elisha, which was a time of great spiritual declension and apostasy. And the third time was Christ and the apostles. And the miracles were given to authenticate God's messengers and God's message. And in a time of spiritual apostasy where they're turning away from the true God, God raised up prophets who gave prophetic words that came true and did miracles to show that he is the true and living God. A couple of other stories that are very interesting. On another occasion, Israel had beaten the Arameans, they would be the Syrians. And the Arameans conclude, the reason Israel beat us is because their God is the God of the mountains. Ah, but if we fight them on the plains, we will win. What does God think about that? Is he some little local deity? He's good on the mountains, but he can't be good on the plains. It's like a football team that says, you know, well, yesterday... There was a game in Kansas City. It was minus six below, and they were playing Miami. Needless to say, Miami got blown out. I don't know if the weather had anything to do with it, but you know what happened? God took such a front at that. 100,000 Arameans were killed. You're going to call me the god of the mountains, but not the god of the plains? You're going to relegate me to being a little local deity? I don't think so. 100,000 died. The way Ahab died was amazing. Ahab wanted to go to war against Jabesh Gilead, a little providence that he needed to take back. And the godly king Jehoshaphat from the south was in alliance with him. That was not wise. And so Jehoshaphat and Ahab are going to go to war together. And Jehoshaphat, being a godly king, he says, look, before we do that, can we consult with uh, some prophets? So Ahab pulls out his hundreds of prophets of Baal. And they're a bunch of yes men. Oh, yes, yes, you're going to be victorious, Ahab. Jehoshaphat has enough spirituality to say, is there a prophet of the Lord here? Do we have a real one? Well, there is, this Micaiah. But I hate him because he only prophesies evil concerning me. Well, bring him out. So they bring out Micaiah. Micaiah first says, oh, yes, king, you'll be victorious. Ahab knows he's being sarcastic. He says, come on, tell me the truth. And Ahab says, You're going to die. In fact, if you come back alive, the word of God is not in me. So they send him off to prison. Ahab has enough respect for that to say, You know what? I'm going to disguise myself. I'm not going to be out there looking like a king. I'm going to disguise myself as like a regular soldier. But he tells Jehoshaphat, But you dress in royal robes. And stupid Jehoshaphat does that. And it almost gets him killed. But you know what happened? In 1 Kings 22, it says, an archer shot an arrow at random and it landed in a chink in his armor and he bleeds out in his chariot. Who's in charge? Who has the truth? God and his prophets. Oh, there's another time during um, when Judah is being threatened by the Assyrians and the Assyrian king has sent a messenger, Rabshakeh, probably a title telling the people of Judah, don't believe Hezekiah. Hezekiah is telling you, trust in the Lord. Don't trust what Hezekiah is saying. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered them? Well, neither will your God deliver you. Don't believe what Hezekiah is saying. Hezekiah makes one of the great prayers of the Bible. It ends in 2 Kings 19, 19, where he says this. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand with all, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, our God. 185,000 Assyrians are killed in one day, because God did that. So what do we learn, friends? from God raising up prophets to warn His people? He is incredibly patient, incredibly, incredibly merciful to a disobedient people. How long he bore with them, how much idolatry and apostasy and blasphemy God endured from his people Israel. He's a long-suffering God. Paul says in Romans ten twenty one, but as for Israel, he, God says, as all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He's a very patient, merciful God. But friends, He's a God whose patience and mercy have a limit. It will eventually run out. And eventually he got fed up with his people, sent them both into exile. And I say again to anyone who's not a believer, uh, don't presume upon the mercy of God. If you don't have salvation in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. You need to repent of your sins, put your trust in Jesus now. You don't know if you will have tomorrow. God has been patient with you. You still have breath in your lungs. You don't know if it'll be so tomorrow. Please put your faith in Jesus Christ. Very quickly as we close, what's the prospect for posterity? Israel showed so much promise during the glory days of Solomon, and then they plummeted. Solomon turns away from the Lord. All the kings of Israel, many of the kings of Judah turn away from the Lord. The Lord gets disgusted, sends them into exile. What's the future? Well, as we know from various portions of Scripture, for Judah, their exile will not be unending. It will be for 70 years, and God will bring them back. Remember the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings 8. If you send your people into captivity and they repent and they turn to you and, and they ask forgiveness, Lord, hear and uphold their cause and forgive them. God did that. After 70 years, Judah was returned from exile to the land. But the kingdom did not come then. But if we learn from First and Second Kings that God is true to his word through the prophets, God has promised that one day, seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. One day, he says to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. One day, someone, a descendant of David, will sit on your throne and his kingdom will have no end. That would not happen until he came who said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we learned from First and 2 Kings about the further unfolding of your glorious plan. Thank you, Lord, that your promises are true. That At times when they seem threatened and your plan seems threatened, you are the God who is in utter control and will bring about your word as you have promised. And we look forward to the return of our Lord and to the eternal life we have in him. And we